Well, good morning. Once again, it is great to be with you all. Um, would you please join me in prayer before we jump into our text? Let's go ahead and go before our God. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time and this space that you have given to us to encounter you. So Lord, we ask that uh, we would be freed from distractions, from the, the things that, that tend to get in the way of our hearing from you. God, by your spirit, we pray that you would enable us to fix our eyes on Jesus. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen. Well, there was an, uh, there was an article that caught my attention recently. It was in The New Yorker, and it was about, uh, <laughs> this is embarrassing. It's okay, though. Uh, it was about uh, devices that are designed for writers to help rid people of distractions. So I do a lot of writing. Um, I write sermons. I write devotionals. I'm in a, I'm in a doctoral program, so I'm going to have to write the big old paper for that. Um, so I thought, I write. I get distracted. Maybe this is for me. So I was reading these different things, and, and they began to talk about the, the deficiencies of uh, you know, writing on computers and using word processors. And I'm like, yes, let's blame the tool, not the user. I'm all about that. Um, and, and as I was reading, I was becoming more and more interested in the different uh, devices that were being described. And then I, I clicked on a link that took me to a place where I might buy one of these devices. And then I saw the price. Now, these devices are intentionally primitive. Right? The whole goal is to be as simple as possible. So things that are basically there to mimic typewriters or uh, handwritten notes, they go for $800. Now, you'd think that that would be enough to be like, I don't need this. But I began to try to think through, well, you know, I'm going to use it for work, I'm going to use it for school, maybe. And then eventually I, I you know, came to, to reality, I got brought back down to earth and, and thought maybe I don't need more expensive devices to free me from the problems created by my current expensive devices. But the truth is, even if they weren't expensive, I don't need more stuff. I don't need half of the things that I have. And I don't think I'm alone in that. See, we have this tendency to conflate what we want and what we need. We do this with small things like tools and gadgets and clothes. But we do this with much bigger things too. You know, we think I will be set, I will be content, I will be happy once I have fill in the blank. Right? Once I have a spouse once I have a new car, once, a, once I have a place to call my own, once I get that next degree, once I have my health back. Now, while any or all of these things would, would be nice, they'd be gifts from God, none of them will be able to meet our deepest need. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. As we look at this text from Mark's Gospel, we're going to examine three main points. First, our deepest need. We're going to talk about exactly what that is. Second, Jesus' ability to meet it. And lastly, how he went about meeting our deepest need. So we're going to begin now by looking at our deepest need. And then we'll start uh, with, verse, or, yeah, with uh, the first five verses of chapter 2. So if you want to turn with me, I'm going to read once more. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. 
And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And while he was preaching the word to them, and they came, and he was preaching the word to them. End of sentence. Okay, new sentence. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And, then, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. All right, now this is quite a scene. Jesus has returned to Capernaum, which is about 20 miles north of Nazareth. And Capernaum was his home base for his Galilean ministry, his ministry to northern Israel. But even though he was at his own home, Jesus didn't have any privacy. His house was filled with people, and there were so many people trying to get in that even the door was blocked. Everybody wanted to see Jesus. And in the verses leading up to this passage, we find out why. He had cast out demons. He had healed many who were sick. He had delivered sermons that were highly sought after. And so we read in chapter 1, verse 28. There it is. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Jesus had essentially attained rock star status. And so when word spreads that he is nearby, at home, people clamor to see him. And among those eager to meet Jesus is a group of four men who have a friend who's paralyzed. They are desperate to get their friend in front of Jesus. They likely don't know much about Jesus, but they've heard that he is able to heal. And they are yearning for their friend to be healed. So when they find out that Jesus is teaching nearby, they go pick up their friend, literally pick him up because they have to, uh, bed and all, and they bring him to Jesus' home so so that he could meet Jesus, so that he could be healed by him. But unfortunately for them, a lot of people have this same idea. The house is packed and there are so many people that they can't even get to the door, but they are determined So instead of giving up and going home, they decide to make their way to the roof. Now, homes in first century Palestine, they're typically one story, and they had flat roofs. And people spent a good good amount of time on their roofs. It was seen as sort of a part of the house, uh, almost like a separate room. And they usually had access to to the roof by a staircase on the outside of the home. So these men make their way to the roof, and they begin to do what any of us would do in that situation. They begin to vandalize Jesus' home, making a human-sized hole in the roof. Um, In the Greek text, we are are told that they literally began to unroof the roof. Now, this was no small task. The typical roof of the day was, uh, it had large wood beams that were separated by about two to three feet uh, with sticks overlaid over those beams. And then uh, various reeds and thistles were, were placed in between, amongst those sticks. And the whole thing was then overlaid with about a foot of dirt so as to prevent water from getting in. Uh, these would form something like tile. So Luke's gospel mentions uh, that, that the roof had tile. So they removed those things. All told, these roofs were about two feet thick. 
these men put in some work. And this demonstrates two things. First, they cared a great deal about their friend. See, in this story, at the very beginning, we see the goal, one of the aims of Christian community. That the best thing that we can do for one another is bring each other to Jesus when we can't get there on our own. Now, usually it's not physical paralysis that keeps us from getting to Jesus, but there are real obstacles nonetheless. And I love what the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer has to say on the subject. In his book, Life Together, he writes, A Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again. And when he becomes uncertain and discouraged, for by himself he cannot help himself without belying the truth, he needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the, of the divine word of salvation. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ in the word of his brother. Friends, we need one another to follow, to follow Jesus. We need Christian community. So think for a moment, do you have that? If the answer is no, you are in the right place. You are in a room full of brothers and sisters, of fathers of, and mothers, of, of aunts and uncles in the faith. People that you can bless and people that can bless you, carry you to Jesus when you can't get there on your own. So first, this scene demonstrates the, uh, the great care and love of this man's friends. But the second thing that this scene demonstrates is the incredible faith that they had. And this is the first thing that Jesus points out about them. He ignores the vandalism and appreciates the faith. And so we read in verse 5, once we're there, there we go. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now that is a powerful statement, isn't it? It is a statement which these men likely responded to with something akin to, Huh? It's hard to know exactly what was going on in their minds, but I think it's safe to assume that forgiveness of sins was not this group's primary motivation for seeking out Jesus and unroofing his roof. Why had they gone through all of this effort? Well, they, were they were seeking physical healing, alleviation from suffering. So when Jesus announces, son, your sins are forgiven, the man likely thought, that's nice, but that's not why I'm here. But Jesus looked at this paralyzed man and knew that he needed something much deeper than the ability to walk. And God has a way of doing this, of setting aside our wants so that he might address a much deeper need. And God does this because the things that, that we often want, they tend to leave us wanting. I know I've mentioned this before, but I teach a logic class at a, a, a classical school nearby. It's a, it's a middle school logic class, and, and I have made the joke, but I know that sounds like an oxymoron, and it kind of is, but it's okay. Uh, so in, in one of my classes a while back, one of uh, my middle school students announced uh, that he just could not wait to grow up. And I asked him, why, why, why do you want to grow up so quickly? And he says, well, because when I'm a grown-up, I'll get to do whatever I want. And I thought in my head, wrong. But I said with my mouth, tell me more. 
And so he did. Um, so he insisted that, you know, as, as an adult, he'll get to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And so then I asked him, you know, what, what are you going to do with all of this freedom? What is it that you want to do? And he says, well, I want to play video games and watch Netflix all day. <laughs> okay. And when I inquired a little bit further and asked, you know, don't you think you might get a little bored with that over time? He looked at me as though I was absolutely insane. Now, we might be inclined to think, well, you know, he's just a kid. My desires are much, more, are much more refined and sophisticated. The things that I want to do are good for me. But I wouldn't be so sure about that. Just before the holidays, a story that was getting a lot of attention in our culture was how Facebook's newsfeed algorithm disproportionately favors angry content. And there's a whistleblower from, uh, from Facebook named Francis Haugen who told the British Parliament in October, quote, anger and hate is the easiest way to grow on Facebook. And why is that? Because that is the content that people keep coming back for. Now, I think if you ask a random person on the street, do you want to be angry? Do you enjoy being angry? They will respond by saying, no, of course not. But our actions say something different. Getting what we want is often the worst thing for us. And that isn't true simply for destructive habits. When we pin our hope to something in this world, when we say, I will be happy when blank, that thing, that thing will rule over us. I'll be happy when I get the house. I'll be happy when, when he finally proposes. I'll be happy when I have kids. I'll be happy when my kids finally leave the house. I'll be happy when I get the job or the car or whatever it may be. When we pin our hope on anything other than God, we're setting ourselves up for massive disappointment. What do we need more than anything else? The thing that we need is God himself. The thing that we need is right relationship with him. We need forgiveness. And so that is where Jesus starts. By starting with forgiveness, Jesus is essentially telling this man, look, the world is filled with able-bodied people who are still a mess. I'm one of them. But Jesus says, I can heal you, but that won't solve your problems. What you need runs much deeper. What you need is right relationship with me. What you need is forgiveness. And that remains true for us today. So think for a minute. How are you inclined to answer the question, if I could have blank, then everything would be all right? How would you fill in that blank? Friends, I would encourage you to not underestimate the depth of discontent in our hearts. Jobs don't last forever. Education doesn't always live up to its promises. Homes get beat up. Order becomes chaos. Our deepest need is forgiveness. To know that we are all right. To know that despite what we've done, despite what we've failed to do, that God will never leave us or forsake us. And this is exactly what Jesus provides. So that is our deepest need. So knowing that, let's take some time now to talk about Jesus' ability to meet our need. 
And let's start by, by looking at verses 6 and 7. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? All right, well, verse 6 tells us that there were scribes in attendance, and, and other gospel accounts sort of fill out the details a little bit more. Not only were there scribes, there were scribes, Pharisees, teachers of the law. And apparently there was a delegation that had come all the way up from Jerusalem to hear Jesus. And they were there not, not, to, not to hear him with goodwill. They were there on a sort of fault-finding mission. Now, their presence there was a big deal, right? not simply because of their position, but because of the lengths to which they had gone to see Jesus. Today, one could make the journey from Jerusalem to Capernaum in about two hours. Now, you hop on Highway 6, there are tolls. I learned this on, on Google Maps this week. Um, but again, all told, you can make the 80-mile journey in about two hours. In the first century, though, no Highway 6. The 80-mile trek would have taken three to four days. These people went through some effort to sit before Jesus. And they don't like what he has to say. They hear Jesus pronounce forgiveness on this man, and they begin to think, who does this guy think he is? In their hearts, they begin to charge Jesus with blasphemy. Why? Because only God is able to forgive sins. And on the one hand, they were right. Only God is able to forgive sins. And this is something that we all know intuitively. The only one who has the right to forgive is the one who has been wronged, the one who has been sinned against. Imagine a scenario. Let's say you are uh, driving on the freeway and there is a reckless driver. It's just, maybe the thought of it just makes your blood boil. All right, so there's, there's a guy who's tailgating, he's weaving in and out, he's cutting people off. It's frustrating. And he ends up behind you because this always happens, right? Despite people's efforts to get five cars ahead, they always end up behind you if you just drive straight. Anyway, um, I don't have strong feelings about how other people drive or anything. Uh, so let's say this person who is driving recklessly ends up behind you and they are inches from your back bumper. Um, if you're like me, you start slowing down as much as you possibly can and you claim that it's for safety. And let's just go with that. It's for safety. And in this scenario, uh, the car in front of you does something unexpected. They slam on their brakes, which causes you to slam on your brakes, which causes the person who is being reckless to rear-end you. All right, so let's say you pull off to the side of the road, you begin to assess the damage, and, and there's a witness who has seen all of these things go down, and he comes and he, and he makes sure that everybody's okay, and he begins to confirm your account of the situation. He, he notices this person has been reckless, they hit you, they were in the wrong, and as you're starting to feel excited about the fact that this witness has, has, has confirmed your account of things, the witness turns to the reckless driver and says, you are in the wrong but I forgive you. What's going to be going through your head in that scenario? It's probably going to be a combination of confusion and annoyance because the bystander wasn't impacted by what happened. Who cares if this person offers forgiveness? They weren't wronged by the situation. This is something, again, that we all know intuitively. The only one who has the right to forgive is the offended party. 
Well, the Bible teaches that in all sin, there is an ultimate offended party. That's God. God loves the world and the people that he created to inhabit it. And when he sees the cancer of sin wreaking havoc in his good world that he loves, he is deeply impacted by that. Which is why David writes in Psalm 51, 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. God is always the offended party when we sin. Therefore, God is the only one able to pronounce forgiveness for all sin. So the Pharisees are correct in their thinking on this point, but they are wrong in their charge of blasphemy against Jesus. Why? Because God was in their midst in the person of Jesus. And Jesus makes this clear in the following verses. In verse 8, we read, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Jesus proves his authority to pronounce forgiveness on many fronts in these verses. First, he is able to perceive the thoughts of his detractors, proving that he is no mere human. And second, he refers to himself here as the Son of Man. This is the first time we see this expression in Mark's gospel, but it's going to be used several times from here on out. In fact, it is Jesus' go-to self-designation. It's used over 80 times in the gospels. Now, that's significant. It's a significant title because it brings us back to Daniel 7. and It has a divine connotation. See, in Daniel 7, the Son of Man is this divine human figure who has been given authority to pronounce judgment on humanity. So in calling himself the Son of Man, Jesus is saying, that's me. I am this divine human judge. And as the Son of Man, as the divine human judge, Jesus had the right to pronounce forgiveness on this man. And lastly, and importantly, Jesus proves his authority with his ability to heal. He validated his claim not just with words, but with powerful action. And as a result, this man went home healed, and those in attendance were amazed, and they glorified God. Jesus has the ability to address our deepest need, to fulfill our true longing. He can provide the forgiveness that we all crave because he is God. Let's close now by taking some time to consider how Jesus went about addressing our need, how he accomplished our forgiveness. Let's take another look at Jesus' question in verse 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. 
Now, on first glance, it appears that the, the mere pronouncement would be the, would be the easier thing, but that's not at all the case. See, many scholars see in this question the shadow of the cross begin to fall over Jesus' ministry. Again, on first glance, we might be tempted to think that the mere utterance of the phrase, your sins are forgiven, was the easier option. But knowing what Jesus was going to have to endure in order to secure our forgiveness, that changes everything. In order for our sins to truly be forgiven, Jesus was going to have to die. Why? Because sin creates a debt that has to be paid. And this is something that we all know deeply on on an intuitive level. I I saw this point made a while back in an article I read in the Paris Review. Uh, There's a writer named Megan O'Giblin who had a monthly column called Objects of Despair. It was a really uplifting read. Um, So what would happen is she would pick uh, once a month an item that she claimed was an object of despair, and she'd write about it. So she wrote about things like drones, um, mirrors, uh, Mars. And the, the article that caught my attention was an article about fake meat. Uh, specifically, specifically a veggie burger that bleeds. Her article begins, Science has lifted us out of nature. It tamed the wilderness. It gave us tools to transcend our lousy fallen bodies, and it shot us to the moon. Now, it has produced a hamburger made entirely of vegetables that bleeds like real beef. She goes on to refer to this burger as a a Franken-meat, which I thought was catchy. Anyway, um, but what's truly interesting about her writing on this subject is that she sees the blood in this vegetarian burger as being richly symbolic as a sign of atonement. The image with blood, along with the language of substitution, like what you would read on a menu, a meat substitute, according to O'Giblin, reminds us, quote, that absolution always comes at a cost. Every dispensation of grace demands its pound of flesh. O'Giblin is not a Christian, But she still recognizes this reality that forgiveness costs something. So again, she writes, absolution always comes at a cost. Every dispensation of grace demands its pound of flesh. This truth is something that we know intuitively. Sin costs something and therefore forgiveness can't be cheap. It's something that we feel in our bones. But the good news of the gospel is that God was willing to take the cost of our forgiveness on himself. This is what Peter writes in 1 Peter 2.24 when he says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Grace demands its pound of flesh. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, our substitute, has provided that for us. By his wounds, we have been healed. By his wounds, we have been forgiven. 
Friends, your deepest need has been met in Jesus. And hopefully that knowledge will begin to transform the way that you think about your temporal needs. Whether or not God provides that job or that house, whether or not you end up with the guy or the girl of your dreams, whether or not your life seems to be in order, you can be at peace. Why? Because you don't need any of it. God has provided for, he has already met your deepest need in Jesus. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are accepted if you've placed your faith in his work. So this week, as thoughts about what you want and need come up, as you face inevitable disappointments about certain desires not being fulfilled, remind yourself of this truth that Jesus has met your deepest need, that you are forgiven, you are loved, you are accepted because of his work for you, which means that you're going to be all right. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning we thank you for the reality that you are enough. That despite all of the time and effort and thought that we give to things that we want, that in you we have everything that we need. So Lord, we pray that you would help us to cling to that truth. Help us to know that in Christ we have been forgiven, that we have been loved, that we have been accepted. Father, help us to know that we are okay because of all of that. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.